Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 133 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different today. Uh, and no one's more surprised than I am, to be completely honest with you. Today, we're stepping off the beaten X-Path to discuss Gwenpool Strikes Back number five? Huh? Hmm. Okay. Let's do it. Gwenpool Strikes Back number 5 had a February 2020 cover date. Uh, this had a Marvel Legacy number of 30. Written by Leia Williams with art by David Baldion, so our X-Factor team. Colors by Jesus Abortov and Guru EFX. Letters, VCs Joe Caramagna. Edits, Bisa white Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale December 18th, 2019. And the reason we're covering it so late is because... I didn't know it existed, so uh, there's that. Uh, actually, I am late to the party on all of this stuff, so a lot of the revelations I might be having here, you guys might already know about. So I might, you know, he who laughs last thinks slowest, so I might be the slowest thinker we've got going on here. Now, how did we get here? How did we get here, and why are we covering Gwenpool? How did... How did an, an old curmudgeon like myself even wind up in possession of an issue of Gwenpool? Much less five of them, you know? Um, we talked about this a little bit, and let's hop back to an earlier episode of this very program. Let's go back to episode 101, where we talked about Deadpool Volume 8, Number 6, which had some Krakoan ramifications, which is why we included it here on the program. And it was in that issue that we met someone. We met uh, the sensational character find of whatever year he first appeared in. Uh, we met Jeff the Landshark. And I was immediately taken <laughs> by Jeff the Landshark, and I wanted to know everything I could about the little fella, and I wanted to own every single appearance that he had made. Well, he first appeared in West Coast Avengers number 7 from 2018-2019, uh, somewhere around there. And uh, he quickly became Gwenpool's pet. Which means, if I wanted to follow the exploits of Jeff the Shark, or just be a Jeff the Shark completionist, well, your boy was going to have to buy some Gwenpool comics. And uh, I wasn't quite sure how I thought about that, or what I thought about that, because to me, the whole uh, Gwensploitation was one of the reasons I grew very, very tired of Marvel. Um, I felt like it was... Uh, and, of course, this was under the assumption that this was a an alternate dimension Gwen Stacy. You know, I didn't know anything about the character. I simply assumed that, you know, we're getting all these Gwens. <laughs> and it's a uh, yet another right here. And this one just has a, a Deadpool coat of paint on it to be LOL random and LOL funny. 
And I really wasn't too enticed to read uh, anything with Gwenpool in it. But the other day, or actually it's going back uh, several weeks at this point, I picked up Gwenpool Strikes Back number one because uh, I found out that there was a Jeff the Landshark appearance in it and figured I would just keep it. And if I ever did, you know, a, a funny haha, you know, Jeff lapsed program here on the channel where we looked at all the Jeff the Landshark appearances, well, it would help me to have all of the appearances, which included, of course, Gwenpool Strikes Back number one. And I bought it. And there was something about it. Uh, you know, usually, I, I, I buy so many books that I never read, it, always with the intention of reading them. But this one, I just, you know, it's like, okay, I have it now. And if and when I ever do this Jeff the Landshark thing, it'll be here for me to refer to. Well, it sat there on top of my pile for a day or two. And then I was like, eh, maybe I should read this. You know, because, I mean, it, it's got a Dodson cover. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful cover. I flipped through it. It's got David Baldi on art, who I, always, I haven't always been too keen on, but it really, really works well with this character, I found. Um, it's a very inviting book. It's just, it's poppy, it's colorful, and uh, at first blush, there's a, it's very inviting. You want to read this, or at least I did. And so I did. I read Gwenpool Strikes Back number one, which we're going to discuss in brief in a few moments here, but I was shocked. I was captivated. I didn't know anything about this character. Again, I assumed that this was just a, here's another Gwen Stacy, everybody. But no, it's something altogether different. Gwenpool is Gwenpool. That's her name, Gwenpool. And to say much more about the character would be kind of stepping on my own toes here, because we're going to be we're going to be talking about uh, the origins and the history of this character as we work our way through these issues here. Uh, today's focus will be on Gwenpool Strikes Back number five, since that is the one that most affects our universe, the universe that X Lapsed has been covering for the past one hundred and thirty-three episodes. But. To do that issue in a vacuum would be doing it a disservice. So we are going to go, and I'm going to try to be as brief as possible, but no promises because brevity is not a talent that I have. But we're going to go through the first four issues of Gwenpool Strikes Back here. Going to be as quick as possible here just to not overstay my welcome and not to, not to spoil everything for people because I still... I mean, I'm going to put the cart before the horse here. I loved this, and I think, uh, I think people should read it. Without any further vamping, how about I just hop in here? We'll start with Gwenpool Strikes Back number one, which had an October 2019 cover date. Here, Gwen gives us the quick and dirty on her origin. You see, she is a character from our world. You know, the world we're currently in at the moment. And this is something I'm going to be saying a lot today. But uh, now, she lives in the 616. And she's got no desire to return home. But here's the thing. It's hard to stay relevant. Okay, she's already had one ongoing series canceled, The Unbelievable Gwenpool, and she's worried that she'll simply disappear forever if her narrative isn't picked up again. And so this entire miniseries, which Gwen does tell us was initially a one-shot, but grows into a five-issue deal during this issue, is about her attempting to become a superhuman in order to improve her comic's longevity. 
Now, to prove to us that she is, in fact, a comic book fan, she name-drops Black Canary Dinah Lance from, you know, the Distinguished Competition, which a Marvel Comics character shouldn't be able to do. Unless DC Comics still still exist as comic books in the Marvel Universe, but let's not think too hard on that. Instead, we'll just move on. So we get a cold open. Gwen is robbing a bank in order to attract Spider-Man. When he arrives, she kind of baffles him and me with a plot about radiation. She then asks him for a favor. Uh, She does refer to him as Peter while lifting his mask up, and this, as you might imagine, causes Spidey to freak the F out. To which she says, come on, we've all read Civil War, we all know who you are. Which would ordinarily cause my curmudgeonly brow to furrow, but it's Gwenpool, so it's okay. The favor is she wants Spidey to bite her and give her spider powers so she can stay in the Marvel Universe. Spidey wraps her up with with his webs instead and tells her to irradiate herself. Now, before the police arrive, Gwen is saved by another Gwen. That's the kind of book that this is, by the way. Now, this is gross Gwen, and uh, she looks like a, a Marvel ape. She rescues our Gwen, who escapes via the white space outside the panels. Or at least she thinks she did. Uh, Instead, she winds up in a confluence of comics panels uh, in what is an attempt to purge her from continuity. Now, as she continues to fall, she grabs her smartphone and Googles how to expose yourself to radiation in order to get powers, you know. She ultimately winds up crawling back through the panels and returning to the one right after Gross Gwen, the ape, saved her from the webs. Because this is the kind of book that this is. Uh, That's where we end it. And it's worth noting here, escaping via the white space outside the panels is Gwen's, uh, you know, physical way of breaking the fourth wall here. She doesn't just address the, uh, the audience. She actually leaves the story. She leaves the narrative to, like, formally address us. Like, hey, the story's on pause, let's talk. And normally, this is something that I'd be like, oh, come on. This is, this is not what I want to read. But it works here. It really works here. And no one's more surprised than I am, because I, I was quite taken by this. Now, this brings us to Gwenpool Strikes Back number two. This had a November 2019 cover date, and this is the Gwenpool Hangs Out with Deadpool issue. So lots of fourth wall stuff, as you might imagine, including a bit at the start where uh, our gal gives us a gratuitous butt shot in order to uh, <clears throat> broaden her fan base. I guess that's one word for it. She then gives us a knowing look, telling us that uh, we would, uh, quote, hit it if given the chance. And uh, that's the kind of book that this is. Keeping on that tack, Gwen talks about the Marvel sliding timescale, informing us that even though she's been here for a few real years, she's still 19 years old. This gets us to a gag about how gross it would be if a writer decided to have she and Deadpool hook up. And they look at the, uh, they look at the reader and uh, basically tell us all that we're nasty if we imagined it. So that's the kind of book this is. Together, Gwen and Wade climb over the panels and wind up in the Fantastic Four's basement. Now, they're doing this so Gwen can concoct a flagrant cover image. Now, the cover of this issue, by the way, has her kissing Mr. Fantastic in front of the rest of the team. Now, Gwen's trying to stay relevant, right? She wants to pop a rating here, so the way she puts it is, why not bang one or more members of Marvel's most enduring marriage to do so? Because this is the kind of... 
I'll stop saying that, or I'll try to stop saying that. Now, while they rummage through the basement here, Gwen finds Sue's wedding dress. Don't know why it was in the basement, but uh, she, of course, puts it on. And uh, she also winds up kissing Reed and shenanigans ensue. Now, there's a funny bit where Ben Grimm wakes up. He sees everything that's happening and just turns around and goes back to bed. It's a very, very funny, very, uh, just an offbeat couple of, uh, couple of panels there. I liked it a lot. Now, the issue ends with Reed and Sue battling Gwen and Wade. Brings us to Gwenpool Strikes Back number three at a December 2019 cover date. Gwen and Wade escape the Fantastic Four into the white space outside the panel like she does. Gwen even winds up scaring the artist of the book, David Baldion, and he winds up spilling his coffee on the page that he's currently drawing, which is this one. And so Reed and Sue get drenched. Wade and Gwen go through a flowchart, sales data, and reader mail to see how to go about making her a success. Now, it turns out, much to Gwen's dismay, that comics fans prefer her when she's being bad. And so, give the people what they want, Gwen has to begrudgingly be bad. And so, she creates Gwenpool Island. And she summons a lot of heavy hitters of the Marvel Universe to, uh, to join her there. We've got the Varsity lineup, which includes Iron Man, Captain America, Captain Marvel, Thor, and Black Panther. The Eye Candy lineup, which includes She-Hulk, Tigra, or Tigra, however you say that, Spider-Woman, Black Widow, Jessica Jones, Atlas, and the Black Cat. Then the popular with young readers, dot, 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 bewildering to older readers group, which maybe it'd be more accurate to say characters younger people claim to like but still don't buy comics about, because ain't many folks buying these characters' books, especially not the young folks. They are Ms. Marvel, Nadia Pym, Miles Morales, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and Squirrel Girl. So, why has Gwen assembled these folks? Now, it seems like Gwen has fancied herself into a fourth-wall-breaking, sort of kind of beyonder of sorts here. She wants to face off against all these heroes in a battle royale, which would make her, like, the most elite of Marvel supervillains, I guess. Upon telling the heroes this, they react by laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. Gwen tells them they got no choice but to fight, and, uh, well, they start to. Tony Stark punches Steve Rogers. Eh, Steve punches Tony back, and uh, it goes about as well as you might imagine for poor Tony. Tony forfeits, and he's teleported into a holding area, which is kind of like a green room for Gwenpool Island, complete with snacks and refreshments. Now, Cap wonders what the prize is for all this senseless fighting. Gwen says Tony Stark made a sizable cash donation for this. And, in fact, we see an off-panel flashback to Civil War II number 8, in which Tony says, hey, set aside a bunch of cash for Gwen. Remember, it's, a, it's that kind of book. Now, in the holding area, Tony chats up Doctor Strange, who's just hanging out there. He gives him some deets on Gwen and how she's not actually a villain. Back on the beach, Gwen shoots Bruce Banner in the face, which is another Civil War II callback. Uh, the Hulk is apparently immortal right now, so this doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. Gwen then poses for her cover shot, asking the Dodsons to enlarge her the size of her bust. The Hulk charges, and we are out of here. Into Gwenpool Strikes Back number four, at a January 2020 cover date, and this is perhaps, and I mean this is saying something, this is perhaps the craziest issue of the series. Which... 
honestly have the least to talk about because it's it is very heavily reliant on visuals. It's a lot of fun, but for me to go beat by beat would be doing it a great disservice because this is something you kind of just got to see. Here, uh, Gwen's got to deal with the Hulk, right? And so she assembles a Gwen core and uh, does so by popping into her other appearances in Marvel books and plucking herself out of those stories while they're still in progress. So she goes to an issue of West Coast Avengers and plucks a Gwen. She grabs one from Superior Spider-Man, one from Champions, one from Rocket Raccoon and Groot, and one from her original ongoing series, The Unbelievable Gwenpool. Now, she even checks in with Gwenpool Prime, which is a really fun callback to her actual first appearance in Origin. Now, let's go back to Secret Wars 2015, okay? Now, if you remember Secret Wars of 2015, Marvel... All Marvel ongoings were were put on hold. They were canceled to make room for a whole, whole, whole slew of miniseries. One of those was Deadpool's Secret Secret Wars. Now, issue two had a Gwen Stacy or Spider-Gwen variant cover, which featured an amalgamated Spider-Gwen and Deadpool character sitting on a pool float sipping a drink. Now, this is the actual first appearance of the character. It wasn't in a story, it was in a variant cover. And I love that our Gwen considers this Gwen to be Gwen Prime. And she tries to recruit her for this cause, but Gwen Prime is not feeling it. She'd rather just lounge in the pool. Now, the Gwens ultimately beat the Hulk, though the West Coast Avenger Gwen, who they call the Hot Dog Ho, for reasons I don't understand... Uh, She dies in the fight. Uh, Maybe she has a thing for hot dogs. I don't know. I haven't read West Coast Avengers. Uh, Now, the issue wraps with Gwen faced off against the big boss fight of the series, which is her best friend, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan. Now, with all that preamble out of the way, we can get into the issue we're actually here to discuss today. This is Gwenpool Strikes Back number 5 which had a February 2020 cover date. Now, first things first for this issue, uh... Gotta mention the uh, gorgeous cover here uh, by Elena Strikes and Judith Stevens. It's a really, really striking cover here. It's a photorealistic painting of Gwen Poole without her mask. Still in her costume, still got her blades on her back. Now she's sitting on a stone wall in what looks like a park or a lodge garden. Now the title of our book is, of course, uh, Gwen Poole Strikes Back. But the Strikes Back portion is struck out. And instead it reads, Gwen Poole Goes Home with the implication being that Gwen is no longer in the 616 and has, in fact, returned to the real world, which is, of course, our world. It is a fantastic cover, and I feel like it's definitely one that'll jump out at you from the shelves. It's it's really something else. It's a, a stark contrast to the to the Dodson covers of the first four issues, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the Dodsons are excellent as well, but... I love that this cover actually kind of tells the story here. You know, we have four very, very beautiful comic book covers from the Dodsons, which tell us that Gwen is in the Marvel Universe. It's it's a comic book. Here we have this photorealistic painting, which tells us maybe, maybe Gwen's gone. Maybe Gwen's back home. It's really, really well done. Really well done. And it, it's so different that you, you can't help but to notice it. So... After our single-page spread of creds and recap, we open with Gwenpool taking advantage of that ability to access the white space of the comic book page. Now, she's dressed like a bee and is literally breaking into the Punisher's house. She checks under his bed while he sleeps, and uh, what do you know? 
she finds a huge jar of bees down there. She opens the jar, and poor Frank is attacked. And she has so much fun doing this that she does it over and over and over again. And in case I haven't said it a million times already, that's the kind of book that this is. So, Gwen escorts us back to the story proper, and she talks to us. And again, this is us she's talking to. She talks to us about negative reinforcement, using how dogs bark at the mailman as an example. You see, dogs bark at the stranger, and the stranger leaves after dropping off the mail. This reinforces the dog's behavior. The dog now thinks he's that the, by barking at the mailman, the mailman will go away. You get it? You know, it, it definitely stands to reason. Now, Gwen exits the white space and returns to Gwenpool Island so that the story can commence. Now, she chats up her pal Ms. Marvel, the big boss of the issue, who is peeking into the holding area where all the other heroes are currently stuck. She describes it as something of a pressure cooker, and so Gwen bows out of their upcoming bout to deal with it. And so we hop into the holding area where a Hulk is smashing, like a Hulk does, until he gets locked in a giant box which is labeled Schrodinger's Hulk. Steve and Tony are still arguing until they find themselves fitted together in a giant t-shirt labeled the We-Will-Get-Along shirt. Now, Steve is kind of just like being the straight man staring at the camera like wah-wah, and Tony is laughing. He can see the humor in this. Gwen then addresses all the heroes whose powers have been nullified, but our hero is soon reminded that, uh, well, these heroes are still a bunch of buff folks who could probably do some damage even without their powers. Gwen panics for a bit and makes an empty threat about what she might do to them. She then asks them all to kindly turn around, and she lies that her powers only work when nobody's looking. Nobody turns around. Gwen then calls for the lights to shut off, and they do. And when they come back on, there's a Jeff the Landshark-shaped door on the wall. Gwen invites the heroes to exit through the shock, though cannot tell them exactly where this doorway leads. It's good enough to end that beat of the story, though, because, again, this is that kind of story. Gwen returns to the beach to chat up and eventually do battle with Mama Kamala. You see, Gwen really wants this fight to happen, but Ms. Marvel does not. Gwen tries to provoke a fight. Kamala ain't budging. She, uh, she can see that her old pal Gwen isn't doing so well, and she'd rather they just talk. Gwen don't wanna. Kamala suggests that Gwen is suffering a manic episode, which uh, might be putting it mildly at this point. Kamala wants to help. Gwen says the only way she can help is by fighting her. I mean, Gwen has to be bad. She has to be the worst villain in the universe. Now, as Gwen balls up her fists and starts lunging, Ms. Marvel does her stretchy thing and grabs our gal in her right hand. Gwen calls her a coward, afraid that she'll lose. To which Kamala says that uh, she won't fight because it would be punching down. This really gets to our gal and she demands to be put down, and Kamala does indeed put her down, but keeps her distance. Gwen asks why she's staying so far away, especially if she's not scared of her. Kamala says that it's clear to her that Gwen has powers, and is therefore still something of a threat. Gwen is surprised. Uh, After all, this entire story has been built around the fact that, uh, well, Gwen does not have powers. Well, not conventional Marvel 616 powers, anyway. Kamala cites the fact that Gwen can teleport, pull things out of nowhere, and alter reality as support of her argument. Gwen has powers. Kamala invites Gwen to sit beside her on the beach so they can hash this out. Reluctantly at first, Gwen does. 
Ms. Marvel cuts through all the BS and just comes out with it. She asks our gal the theoretically simple question of, what are you? Gwen replies with human. Mama Kamala's all, well, yeah, duh, but what kind of human? Is she an inhuman? Oof, God forbid. Is she an irradiated human? Is she an alien passing as human? These are all valid suggestions here because of everything Gwen can do. Now, Gwen explains her secret origin, which Kamala already knows. And we do as well. Gwen comes from a world where the heroes are just comic book characters. Of course, she comes from our world. This makes no sense to Kamala, as she's a real person, not a comic book character. And Gwen's all, yeah, no, duh, but in my world, yaint. <laughs> you are a comic character. Kamala asks Gwen to prove it, and of course, Gwen cannot. She tells Ms. Marvel that Doctor Strange had mystically cut her ties to her homeworld so that she could actually survive in the 616. Kamala ain't buying it, but she's using Kid Glove's approach here to on her obviously distressed friend. Now, Ms. Marvel then makes a suggestion, and here, my friends, is where X-Lapsed comes in. She suggests to Gwen that maybe, just maybe... She's someone whose powers developed during adolescence. Like, you know, those folks we talk about on this show. Now Gwen's confused and asks Kamala to clarify if she's asserting that she might be a mutant. Well, duh, that's exactly what she's saying. Now, here, I feel, would have been an excellent opportunity for some metagag about Marvel making formerly mutant characters into something else so they can use them in the films, and not the other way around, but, uh, yeah, they... They didn't say it. That might have been too uh, biting of a commentary, so, uh, you know, I said it. Kamala goes on to make her case, suggesting that her powers might have robbed her of her memories, or at least the real memories of manifesting mutant powers. Now, as Gwen hears this, we see bits and pieces from her actual origin, but they shatter, as though in the telling, everything Kamala is suggesting is actually coming to pass, or actually came to pass in the past. Now, Gwen is frazzled and just can't take it anymore. And she tells Kamala that, yes, she's a mutant. I agree. She does so just to get Kamala to stop talking. She tells Kamala then that, uh, I mean, she just resigns here. She tells her that she's right. That, uh, that Gwen made up everything about coming from that other world. She's always been from the 616, you know. The friends then hug, and Gwen forfeits the fight. She then vanishes knowing full well that she no longer exists. She's going to die here and now. We turn the page and join her in a surreal, ethereal sort of place. It's not her usual white space. It's instead another confluence of comic book panels. She addresses us, saying that she knew from the start that this was going to be a five-issue miniseries, which is to say it was always going to come to an end. She just wishes it had a more dignified one for her. But, after everything she's gone through here, she's just too tired to push the issue and make it all happen. She further resigns herself to the fact that she is going away. She takes a bit of solace in knowing that no one's going to miss her anyway. But then, hmm, something appears before her. Something interesting to folks familiar with the current take on the X-Men. Why, it's a Krakoan gate. Now Gwen stares into it, not knowing whether it's her salvation or simply the way her story ends. Is it her white light? Is it uh, just the way she goes out? 
Well, at this point she's too exhausted to even question it, and so she steps through. She arrives on Krakoa. You see, Krakoa saved her. She's been retconned into being a mutant. Therefore, she gets to continue existing. She drops to her knees and cries. She's soon joined by Wolverine, who tells her that she's safe. They embrace, and Gwen makes a comment about how Wolverine always seems to bond with pseudo-teenage mutant ninja daughter figures. Which would normally make me cringe, but this is Gwenpool, so we'll allow it. Now, Logan is confused by this comment and suggests that this kid might be a bit damaged in the mind, and so he calls for Jean Grey to have a telepathic peek. Now, Gwen cannot allow that, lest the X-Men find out her true origin, and Wolverine is cool with just letting her be. Now, Gwen is then confronted by her ex-boyfriend and former West Coast Avengers teammate, Quentin Quire. And I still can't believe that Kid Omega was officially an Avenger. Uh... You remember when the Avengers were considered to be like on a whole nother level, like the elite of the elite? Eh, me either. Anywho, Gwen rushes in and hugs the boy that she dumped via text message just a few issues back. Uh, and I, I suppose I forgot to mention that uh, she did indeed break up with Quentin Quire via text in this miniseries. She apologizes and then breaks away to climb up some Krakoan vines. Wolverine and Quentin chat about their weird new island mate. And Logan still thinks they ought to give her the once-over because that girl ain't right. Quentin tells him that she's had a tough year and not to worry about it. We rejoin Gwen atop some vines looking toward the horizon. She sees all of her potential futures in the form of ethereal comics panels. She then addresses us, thanking us for supporting her and giving her these futures. She then decides to future-proof herself for whatever writer handles her story next. And then Gwen goes on to write an info page. Holy cow, she's written her own damn Tom Muller-designed Hoxpoxdocs info page. And I love it. <laughs> it's basically a quick and dirty on her. She's from our Earth, but chose to live in the 616. She's cheerful, sweet, goofy, and earnest. Her friends include Cecil, whoever that is, Batrock, Terrible Eye, whoever that is, Jeff the Landshark, Deadpool, Squirrel Girl, and Quentin Choir. Her enemies depend on the book. She has a crush on a few redacted names and Quentin Choir. Her parents and brother, Teddy, still live in our world, and she doesn't even know if she actually has a mutant power, and she'll just leave that for whoever writes her next. The page also includes a sticky note, which reads, You can't control me, and I will never die. I gotta ask, uh, could we get Gwenpool to write all of our info pages from now on? This one was uh, This one was a lot easier to digest than they usually are, and a lot more fun to read. Now we wrap up with Gwen talking to us about some existential feelings that come about when a comic character series is either cancelled or comes to an end. She assures us that we can reread her series whenever we like in order to have the adventure all over again. She walks off into a Looney Tunes looking that's all folks sort of thing and tells us that it's the end. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, um, well... We just witnessed a character becoming a mutant. Next time out, we're going to see one become not a mutant. And it's going to be... Fantastic. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this, because this is a story, a series, a character, a book, a what-have-you, that I shouldn't have enjoyed at all. (laughs) You know? uh, In fact, I should have hated this. 
I should have absolutely despised this, but I had the best time with this. I absolutely loved it. I ran the gamut of emotions with it. It had a tremendous amount of heart and depth, especially considering the conceits of both the story and its feature character. I never, ever expected to be so taken by this, but damn, what a ride it was. Let's let's start by going to the end, and we'll work our way backwards, okay? Because the end is... The end is downbeat, but just so profound. Um, I'm a fairly soft touch. I've gotten choked up at comics before here. I've talked about... Uh, I've, I did DC Comics Rebirth, and the there's the Wally and Barry scene where they hug, and it took me several takes to get through that one, because no matter how many times I read it, I get choked up seeing it. Uh, there was the JSA Christmas issue where Ma Hunkle... You know, rejoins the team here I, I, I get choked up uh, Even one of the uh, the final chapters of Hoxpox Where we see the characters Just, uh, they were partying at the very end there And just seeing them together Seeing them smile It really, it really got to me That said I never in a million years Would have guessed that one of those comics Would be an issue of friggin' Gwenpool but that ending kind of got me. Now, despite the fact that we get to keep Gwen, there's still this odd feeling of loss. And I mean, we've all been around the block before as comics fans and fake-ass comics historians. We've all had characters, series, and continuities is, is taken from us, right? Sometimes we just roll with the punch. Other times, it stings a bit more. And I, I could name some examples, but... Nobody wants to hear me rail against the New 52 for the next 20 minutes for the millionth time, so I won't. You just know what I'm talking about. I'm assuming that. So here, you know, Gwen addresses us with both a hopeful message that her exploits will continue and a goodbye for the series. I don't know. I felt this real pang of loss. You know, capped by her assuring us that should we ever want to start the adventure over, all we got to do is pick up the book again. And that got me. That really struck me in a way I was not expecting. And even reading it now for the second and third time, it's just like, damn. Why is that getting to me so bad? It's it's wild. Um, and again, we're... As comics fans, we're used to being told, usually upon, upon big changes occurring in a shared universe, you know, we're told, hey, those stories you love, they still exist. They're right there on your shelf. No one's taking them from you. And I usually take something like that as a cop-out or a dismissive sentiment said by creators who want to eat their cake and have it too, while also making us feel bad for caring so much. Here, though, I don't feel that way. Let's consider the nature of the meta-narrative in this series. If we look at it from that regard here, we have very much accompanied Gwen on this adventure. We didn't just witness it, we were part of it. We were there with her. Something that Leo Williams did phenomenally well was making us feel as though we were there. And so, this goodbye, an assurance that we can have this adventure all over again should we decide to, it was more powerful and more brimming with that intangible we talk about a lot on the show, and that intangible, of course, is heart. And it got me. Even talking about it now, I feel, you know, the frog in my throat. It's, 
powerful, very powerful, and just so subdued. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, let's keep working backwards. Gwenpool is now a mutant, I think. Uh, I'll admit that while I'm a soft touch, I don't often, if ever, laugh out loud at comics. Okay? Sometimes I'll chuckle, sometimes I'll smile, but not really a, a pure, unadulterated LOL, right? Well, when I turned the page and saw that Gwen wrote herself a Tom Muller-esque Dawn of X info page, <laughs> I actually laughed. Uh, it caught me completely by surprise, and it was one of those like sharp, biting laughs, which can kind of tear up your throat a bit. And it did, let me tell you. It's an excellent use of a now-familiar and arguably overused X-Men narrative device to really illustrate what's happening here. It adds Gwenpool to the X-Family. In a way that it almost plays with the with the current X-Men formula, where story beats sometimes aren't told in the actual comic. They're saved for these info pages. And I, and I rail against that so often, but here, it worked. It played with our expectations as X-Men fans here to say, Yeah, Gwen's one of you now. You know, she's here. <laughs> and it worked astonishingly well. I absolutely loved it. Uh, what I also loved, I loved seeing Gwen unknowingly step through the Krakoan Gateway, unsure as to what it actually was. I mean, she obviously recognized it as a Krakoan Gateway, but she didn't know if maybe it was her path to the white light of infinity, you know, being booted, or a new lease on her 616 life. And when she did emerge on Krakoa, I probably had like the stupidest smile on my face. I absolutely loved it. It subverted my expectations, and, uh... It made me excited to see more of Gwen interacting with our mutant heroes, and I absolutely love the fact that it wasn't spoiled for me. I did not expect this in a million years. And I mean, we have seen a little bit of Gwen on Krakoa. I wonder why we haven't seen more of her yet, but so far we've seen her twice. We did see her in that Fortnite rainbow thing, you know, where they were all zipped away to the Fortnite universe or something we... We're never going to read. Um, and also, we saw her in that giant group shot in X of Swords Destruction. And uh, I, I really want to see more of her. Hopefully, there's more in store for her during Reign of X. Uh, I mean, Leia Williams and David Baldion are our current X-Factor creative team, so uh, maybe we get some Gwenpool in there. I'd be, uh, I'd be all about that. Let's move backwards a little bit more here. We have a discussion between Mama Kamala and Gwen. Right, and it was very well done. I don't know much about Ms. Marvel. I don't know much about, you know, those characters that uh, befuddle and bewilder us older people. <laughs> I don't know much about them, not because I've dismissed them or devalue them in any way. I just don't really think that those characters are written for me, and I figure that uh, me looking at or analyzing those characters would be unfair to them and me, right? If they're not for me, they're not for me. If they're for you, that's great. But here, it's like I'm almost learning that maybe maybe these characters are for me in, in some sort of way here, which is something I never thought I'd be saying. But let's look at this conversation here. I don't, I don't have much to say about it, but there was this palpable tension and unease involved in this, uh, in this discussion. And it actually felt very much like an awkward conversation that a pair of friends would have. And getting to the end of that discussion here, it was actually quite heartbreaking when Gwen just couldn't deal with it anymore. 
and she just agreed with Kamala to stop to get her to stop talking. You know, she had all these thoughts, and suddenly her her real origin just started to get like spotty, and you felt as though she was losing something, losing herself. Because without an origin, do you have a story, right? Do you have a now without a yesterday? Do you have a today without a yesterday? I don't know that you do, and. I don't know if that, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that was kind of the feeling I got there when I saw Gwen just kind of freaking out. Like, she saw her yesterdays start to disappear, and it just, like, everything was rolling forward, and she figured, okay, I'm, I'm going away now. I don't have an origin here, so I have no right to exist here. And she just told Kamala, yes, you're right, you're right, just please stop talking. And it was very, very powerful. Really, really good stuff here, and... Uh, Boy, I just loved it. I just loved it. Let's look at the art. Let's look at the art here. Um, I'm not going to really talk about the first four issues of the series. This is more a discussion of the retcon of Gwen into being a mutant and basically the goodbye we have to this miniseries here. I could talk about this series for probably a couple of hours if I if I set my mind to it, but this is what we need. We need issue five, and that's that's what we're going to analyze. And so let's move to art. And folks who've listened to the show know that it took me a minute to come around to David Baldion's work on X-Factor, right? When it started out, I was like, what in the hell is this? I eventually did come around. It took a minute, and even now, it's not my favorite. I mean, I can appreciate it, and I can even like it a great deal, and I can think that it's a perfect fit for the story that it's telling, but it's still not my style of art. In Gwenpool Strikes Back, however, I feel like he was the perfect fit. You know, this was the best way to uh, to depict this character, was under David Baldion's uh, pencils and inks. Now, I've since grabbed a handful of Gwen's earlier issues with the uh, Gurohiru art, and I tell you, I originally preferred the Gurohiru stuff. Seeing that, that was Gwenpool to me. Again, I didn't know jack about Gwenpool, but when I pictured Gwenpool, it was the Gurahiru style of art. But now, I gotta say that the Baldeon art does more for me, and I feel like it fits the character better, at least in my opinion at this point. I haven't really read any of the unbelievable Gwenpool stuff, so maybe my opinion would change, but for my money right now, uh, David Baldeon has, uh, has the... Uh, has the tack on on Gwenpool. So both Williams and Baldian, I gotta say, they knocked this one out of the park, and it made a believer out of a guy who would probably be looked at by kids these days as an out of touch curmudgeon of a comics fan. Then again, we out of touch curmudgeons are the only ones still actually paying money for comics. But what are you gonna do? Overall, well, final words here. I had an absolute blast with this entire series. It was such a wonderful surprise. I'd wager that it's probably all available on Marvel Unlimited, so if you have a device compatible with that application, you've got little reason not to check this one out. Even if you're steadfast and not liking current year Marvel, I think this one has enough heart and love for the history of this universe that it uh, might win you over like it did me. And with that said, I want to end with an appeal. This is not a standard X-Men book. X-Lapsed has been looking at the X-Men books. 
but I would like to make this a more all-encompassing look at the X-Men and mutants in this era. So, for listeners out there who are reading the wider Marvel Universe, let me know other stories like this. Let me know other stories that have Krakoan ramifications and mutant ramifications, or maybe just where the X-Men make a notable guest appearance that we should discuss and cover and include in our uh, little journey here. I feel discussing this Gwenpool miniseries kind of broadened our horizons here. Maybe, maybe I got one more person to try this try this book out because I, I would have never tried this out <laughs> otherwise. Uh, if I wasn't looking for Jeff the Landshark and I didn't accidentally open it up to see what it was all about and then didn't accidentally fall in love with it, I might have missed out. And hopefully, uh, this is opening some eyes to this story. Uh, in the future, here we do have some non-X books that we're going to be covering. We've got a story that takes place in Champions that has a sizable X-Men guest spot in it. We have a three-part story in Runaways, of all things, which has uh, some Krakoan ramifications as well. If you guys know of anything else, please, please let me know. Speaking of letting me know, let's hop into the mailbag here, because we got a couple of great letters. First, we're going to talk to Damien, who is discussing Cable Number 6 and a little bit about X-Men Extermination. Now, Damien says, this was a good issue, but the vast majority of it was spent on setting up the end of X of Tens. As such, it felt decompressed compared to the previous two issues. Earlier in the crossover, you mentioned pacing as an issue, and I think this whole story is going to read very oddly in the Inevitable Collection. The changes of pace seem utterly arbitrary. And yes, that is something I'm very, very interested in hearing about here. Hopefully, someone's discovering this program a little bit late, and, uh... Maybe only experienced Exotens as a collected edition. I'd love to hear how you received the story as compared to those of us who read it chapter by chapter. Because the pacing is all over the place. Um, there, are, there are times where it's decompressed. There's times where it's wholly compressed. You know, it, there it's very uneven read. And I wonder how satisfying of a read that is. So if anybody out there, any time travelers are listening to this show uh, somewhere down the line, please, please write in and let me know how you received this story, reading it in the collection. Damien continues, Of course, there are some wonderful character moments, as it's Duggan and Noto. I don't know, I don't know quite how they managed it, but they convinced me that Doug and Bay have developed feelings for each other. Cable's inability to kill Bay in front of Doug and his despair at his failure are really well handled, as is reaching out to his parents. Excellent scene. Excellent scene there. And, and, I mean, this is something we've discussed a few times already. Kid Cable feeling like maybe Old Man Cable would have handled it better. That is an amazing little piece of characterization, which didn't, it, it didn't really overstay its welcome as a concept or an idea, but I love the fact that it was put there because it just gives us a whole lot to, to, to think about and talk about. And... I don't know, just kind of muck around in our mind here, especially as it flips the script on, on Extermination, where Kid Cable thought that Old Man Cable had become too soft, and now it's kind of the other way around. It's very, very cool stuff here. The love between Doug and Bay is interesting. Um, I think this is going to be a tough road to hoe, <laughs> outside of just knowing glances and... Being told narratively that these two have a connection now I'm not sure that I completely buy into it just yet But there's definitely something there There's definitely something there And hopefully it'll get fleshed out as we uh, get into the rain here 
Uh, Damien continues, Clearly, Saturnine wants Cable to communicate with Scott and Jean, but only to a certain extent. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the next part, as I feel like the Scott and Jean plot is something we've all been waiting for. And indeed it was. Indeed it was here. Unfortunately, it kind of took a step back to the info page reveal that the X-Men were disbanded. <laughs> I think I think anything Scott and Jean was kind of uh, overshadowed by that revelation, where... And it's something we'll talk about in uh, your next letter, but that revelation should have been made clear a lot earlier here. Uh, it would have done better service to the Scott and Gene plot, and it would have also made uh, a lot of our earlier issues of X-Men seem a little bit more, eh, you know. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, Damien continues, The Gorgon fight was handled really well. Noto did a great job of showing how destroyed Gorgon was. The fact that the White Sword is 100 warriors is a great way of leveling up the score. I think we all knew it had to be a draw before the, annihil- the Apocalypse Annihilation fight, but they got there in a surprising way. And that's true. That's true. It was a very surprising way to do this because, I mean, Cable... It, 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 we had Cable talking to Scott and Gene, and he's like, hey, we're down by this amount of points, and there is absolutely no way that we'll be able to come back. Because that's how Saturnine wanted him to think. She wanted him to reach out to Scott and Jean. And this would only work if there were the odds were insurmountable. So Scott and Jean had to realize that really there was no winning this. So they had to they had to assemble the forces. They had to bring the X-Men back together. They had to storm the Citadel, as it were. Because if there was even the slightest chance that the X-Men could pull this out, or the Krakoan champions could pull this out, they'd be less imperative for Cyclops and Jean to do what they did. So the odds had to be insurmountable, and we had to find a creative way to make those odds even. And doing it with the 100 was uh, was a really good way of doing that. I, I, when I, As I was reading that, and Saturnine's like, wait a minute, the score's tied now, and oh, wait, wait, Cohen's are actually ahead by one. I was just like, wait, how did that happen? And then looking back, it's like, wow, they're counting each of the 100 here as a win for, as a point for Krakoa. Very well done. Very well done. It surprised me, and it worked. Damien continues. We end on a useful text page. Will wonders never cease? And yes, this is the text page that goes through, if, I rem- if I'm remembering correctly, it goes through all 25 bouts here, which gives us some context, which gives us some clues. Uh, of course, the eating contest with Red Root is still weird, but uh, it actually gives us, it gives us everything we need to know. Going into it because some of the uh, some of the one panel bouts were a little bit nebulous. We didn't know exactly what was going on, but here everything was clarified. And uh, I mean, it kind of <laughs> you look at the text page there, and the fact that it includes more information than actual sequential art pages makes it feel like hey, they could have just released this text page <laughs> as a uh, as a as a penny comic, and uh, we could have gotten just as much out of it. But uh, if the art wasn't so good, I would have suggested that. But the art was very, very good. Now, Damien shifts over to the time-displaced X-Men in Extermination here. Damien says, I really enjoyed the discussion of the time-displaced X-Men you shared st- uh, starting from your Sunday specials. One day, I will get around to listening to them. It's interesting to hear you th- hear that you think it was a good idea to bring them into the present. My problem with the whole storyline goes back to Avengers vs. X-Men. 
I could see why it was they felt they needed the X-Men, why the X-Men needed a reboot after AVX as they had been made into villains of that story, and everyone had behaved in weird, arbitrary ways that ignored massive parts of continuity. Bringing in the original five then underlined the villainy of the Phoenix Five by giving us a tangible comparison. As such, it took much longer to redeem the current year X-Men than it should have because of the original five. I resented their presence even though I enjoyed some of the stories. I'm the man who liked the Hopeless and Bagley series. And uh, the Hopeless and Bagley series was um, something of a cursed chalice, I feel. I I think they did the best they could with it, but this was after Bendis decided he was done playing with the toys. And I don't think... It wasn't really a, a passing of the baton. It was more like setting the baton on fire and then like throwing it. At Hopeless and Bagley And it's like, here, catch this And and make something out of it Because uh, when Bendis is done, he's done You know, he just He was through He had a Guardians of the Galaxy a movie to cash in on So uh, he was done with the X-Men, I guess But it wasn't a bad series I feel like it was a little bit uh, I feel like it was a victim of circumstance It was doing what it could As best it could Because no one knew what they were going to do with these characters To the point where that volume ended With them trying to go back to the past And seeing that they were already there So it's like, well, who are these characters? We don't know if they're the 616 We don't know where they come from, where they're going Who they are, are they staying? Do they stay? We just didn't know It was an exercise in treading water And in that respect, uh, Hopeless did as best he could with it and, And made something readable so I'll, I'll definitely hand them that The fact that it did come after uh, AVX I mean, AVX is one of those stories that we could kick around a lot Because everything you said is absolutely correct here uh, Characters did not act like the characters we knew and loved um, The Phoenix Five was more of a device than a threat I hated the fact that Beast and Wolverine sided with the Avengers over the X-Men Um I really feel like it was a... Well, it was written by committee, and that showed, you know. Um, I believe... Uh, was Matt Fraction part of that? He, was he writing... No, he wasn't even writing... I don't think there was anybody actually writing the X-Men involved in that. Maybe Jason Aaron. Uh, he was doing Wolverine and the X-Men, maybe, at this point. Unless he had already handed it over to... Uh, was it Jason Latour, maybe? I don't remember. But it felt like a Avengers story where the Avengers needed a threat, and it was the X-Men that were made into that threat. And they were jobbed out, and it sucked. <laughs> it wasn't my favorite story. Uh, Damien continues. I think we all know that part of the reason the original five were not able to influence the current day team to change direction is the doomed behind-the-scenes attempt to promote the Inhumans. So there was no chance of a reset. Yeah. That's another thing. That's another thing here where Marvel was throwing their hissy fit, and needed to relegate the X-Men to something lesser than what they were Which, I mean, I, I'll never claim to be a corporate genius Or a salesman Or someone who someone who knows what's on the pulse of uh, anybody But uh, to me Why would you not try to make everything you put out be the best it can be? It felt to me very much, and I might be projecting I certainly, I certainly acknowledge the fact that I am biased But it feels like they were really just sliding the X-Men They were putting them into a slot where where they wouldn't be as successful as they could be Because I feel like if you put all your energies behind any given franchise You can make them the best that they can be 
We saw Bendis come on to Avengers and take a, a, a suffering book, a book that was suffering to maintain sales, into a powerhouse. That's something that can be done. It could be done with a damn near any product, except for the Inhumans, because nobody gives a crap about the Inhumans, and no one ever will. But the X-Men had... They had held Marvel up for 20 years and held the industry up for 20 years as the top-selling book out there. And here they were being shoved uh, to, to be replaced with the friggin' Inhumans. Really bad stuff. Really bad stuff. Really cutting off your nose despite your face. Just, uh, I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> now, uh, Damien continues. I didn't know that the X-Men had retained their memories of their trip through time. That might explain Jean's costume and codename choices. If her teenage memories feel recent, then maybe she feels a closer connection to her past. Now, that's very possible. And it's funny, I, as I've been doing this show and I've been sharing ideas and thoughts and theories and just feelings about this run with folks, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot is that they hate the fact that Jean is back to being Marvel Girl and she's wearing the Neil Adams outfit. And I don't know, I like it. <laughs> I kind of like it. I like the costume. It's a costume I never got to see in, you know, present day. It was always a relic of the past here. And I think bringing it to the present, it's... It's a good-looking costume. I like the costume. I think it's kind of understated. But uh, the Marvel Girl thing, it's its an interesting theory that uh, that she has a connection to her uh, younger self here. I, I've heard a lot of theories that it might be a, you know, we, we talk a lot about Professor X and Krakoa sort of manipulating thought. So maybe putting characters where they're most useful to him and them. And that's usually what I hear about uh, Jean being Marvel Girl, is that she's most useful to Xavier in that role. But there is certainly reason to uh, to uh, theorize that the fact that her youth was so uh, recent <laughs> that she might feel a deeper connection to that uh, time in her life. That's, that's very interesting. Now, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until my teenage self comes to the future to stop me from commenting, make my next lapsed. Well, let's hope that never happens, because I love reading your comments, and I love hearing your thoughts. So thank you so, so much for writing in. Next up, Hellions, number six from Evan. Now, Evan talked to us a little bit last episode about some pre-listening thoughts. Now we're going to get some post-listening thoughts here. He says, you were spot on about Hellions, number six. That's the title that I'm most likely to go back and buy actual physical copies of. Even the stuff I find unpleasant, and there's a lot, is so well done. And Zeb Wells weaves humor, horror, and genuine emotion seamlessly. <sighs> you all need me to talk about Hellions more? You need me to uh, shout the praises of Zeb Wells <laughs> and Hellions? Because I could do it. I could do it, as you all know. I, I spend a lot of time talking about how much I absolutely adore this book. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, but I definitely agree. It's wonderful. Evan continues, I know Sinister was hanging on to the Apoth package for who knows what reasons, but I'm thinking that the package that Sinister is taking care of for Quanon is the clone of her actual child that was killed in Fallen Angels number one. That seemed like too big a reveal not to be revisited. And yes, we actually talked about this a little bit last episode because I didn't even consider that. I assumed it was Apoth from the ending. I forgot all about Quanon's kid. So I think I think you guys are right. I think that it's 
almost definitely uh, the child that they're trying to separate from uh, the apoth uh, disturbance or uh, influence. I think that's probably it for sure. Uh, Evan continues. And don't worry about getting her mixed up with Betsy. You may not realize this, but the erstwhile Captain Britain actually inhabited Quinan's body for a while. I'm going to have to make a note of that because I don't think we've ever been told that before. Next thing you know, we'll find out they both had a thing for butterflies or something. Huh. <laughs> Evan continues. On Squirrel Girl, because we did discuss Squirrel Girl briefly, he says, I had the same initial reaction to you as you to Erica Henderson's art. Not bad at all, but not my style. Uh, not a style to my taste. But it ended up fitting the book perfectly. Derek Charm took over toward the end of the run with a similar style. 58 issues and an original graphic novel later, and I never failed to laugh out loud or question whether or not I got my money's worth. You're going to make me read Squirrel Girl, aren't you? Oh. You know, uh, we just spent an hour talking about Gwenpool. So, uh... Maybe maybe Squirrel Girl is in my future here. Unfortunately, she's not a mutant anymore, right? They made her an inhuman or some some crap like that. <laughs> they gotta they gotta save Squirrel Girl for the uh, motion pictures, I guess. They can't make her a mutant anymore. But uh, on your on your word here, I think I might I might at least give it a whirl here. I think I owe you all that much. I'll give Squirrel Girl a whirl and see if it's a. Uh, See if it's something I can uh, enjoy. Uh, that's something that me and Reggie used to talk about a lot, and he would always try to get me to read it. And I mean, I kind of wish I did. You know, back in the day when uh, we had the opportunity to talk about it, but uh, I did not <laughs> because I was kind of far up my own ass, which is a problem I have, and that's one of the reasons why this Gwenpool story was such a shock to me. But uh, we'll give that a shot somewhere down the line here. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and the suggestion there, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. We're going to wrap up with one last piece of mail from Andrew Franklin regarding X of Swords. It's four words, and it is, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) me too. (laughs) And that's not to say I hated it. It was just... It overstayed its welcome. Uh, There was a lot to like in there, but there was also a lot not to like in there. I am glad it's over. I won't miss it. Um, There were bits in there I really, really liked, really, really appreciated, but uh, I'm more than ready to move on to... uh, to the reign of X and uh, see what's see what's next for our characters here. X attends. I mean, we've been talking about it since we started this show. That was September, so that's oh god, it's like a half year ago. We've been talking about this damn story, so it's nice to finally be through it and uh, not have to worry about it anymore. So I'm with you, Andrew, and I appreciate you sticking around uh, through the entire thing alongside. Me and the rest of our extended X-Labs X-Family. It uh, really, really means a lot. But uh, that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. If anybody out there would like to comment on anything, x Attends, Squirrel Girl, uh, Gwenpool, any other Marvel appearances of our X-Men characters or Cohen ramifications, please, please, I beg of you, <laughs> write in. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlaps to dot chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about all sorts of stuff over on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to everything, all 500-plus episodes from the Chris and Reggie channel over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Okie dokie, that was a long one. So I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out with me today and uh, taking this trip into uh, or off the beaten path of the Dawn of X books here and hopefully enjoying this weird little romp with Gwenpool as much as I did. The next few episodes will be similarly kind of off the beaten path sort of stuff here. Just some business we need to take care of uh, before we get into the Reign of X proper. It's just some stuff that we missed while we were away, clashing swords with Amenthi demons. But uh, we'll get through those and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming before long. So means a lot to me that you guys are sticking around. You stuck with me through X-10s and uh, into the future. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.